Well, tonight we're going to be in Acts chapter 4, going into Acts chapter 5 a little bit, um, where we let off last week. Uh, last week, we, uh, we talked about the aftermath of the miracle when Peter and John, uh, when the Holy Spirit healed the lame man who was uh, born lame, who had, was sitting at the gate beautiful, and uh, he had been there, and the Lord spoke to Peter, and, and that day he was healed, and and it was all a great, wonderful miracle, but then there was some of the aftermath, and including being called, thrown into jail overnight and being called before the Sanhedrin and grilled and then threatened and say, told, they, were, they were told, don't speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And again, that was the real key. They, they didn't care if they taught. They didn't care if they spoke. And, and that's still the flashpoint today. When you tar, start talking about Jesus, that's when people get uncomfortable. You can talk about God with people all the time, but when you, when you start talking about Jesus, all of a sudden that gets uncomfortable because that's the dividing line. You know, this, it's not do you believe in God, it's, it's what do you believe about Jesus? Uh, because there, even the, the demons believe, the Bible says that, but we know they're not saved. It's, a, it's all about Jesus. And so uh, we, we talked about that and, and, and then... Last week we ended with them being sent out from the Sanhedrin being told don't to do this anymore. So we're going to pick it up and uh, see what happened after they had this meeting and they were threatened by the Sanhedrin. So Acts chapter 4 verse 23 says this, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed... The place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God, God boldly. Okay, so on the heels of this great miracle and on the heels of being uh, called on the carpet, so to speak, before the Sanhedrin, finally the, the moment comes, Peter and John released, are released, and as soon as they're released, Peter and John went back to, the, as the word says, to their own people or to the uh, believers that, that had no doubt had already assembled and gathered and began to pray for them because we see that pattern as we see later in the book of Acts that when there was a crisis, when, the, when one of their leaders was arrested, when something bad was happening like that, they would, they would, their immediate and their first response was to let's get together because we've got to pray. Well, there's a lesson right there for us. Uh, you know, how, how many times do we try to uh, solve all kinds of issues before we pray, and we, we, sometimes we treat prayer as a last resort when that should be our first, our first uh, option to every situation that we face. So they go back to them, and they 
report all that the high priest and all that the elders had said to them, and they hold nothing back. They tell them, listen, they said, don't do this. Don't speak in the name of Jesus anymore. They're threatening us. Uh, but the threats of the Sanhedrin did not stop the believers. Now, I won't say that it didn't scare them because, uh, you know, if you're a human being, you're going to experience fear from time to time. Isn't that right? Uh, in fact, David said, and, and I, this is what I believe. I, I believe that fear and faith can't exist in the same place because David said, when I am afraid, then I will trust in you. Uh, in fact, if you never face situations that, that can cause natural fear to come up, then why do you need faith, right? Why do you need to trust in him? And so they're in this situation, they hear this, and I, I, and I know in the natural they're, they're thinking, that, oh no, what's going to happen? You know, are they going to crack down on the rest of us? Are they going to do to our leaders now what they did to Jesus? And are we next in line? But, but in hearing this, what they, what, it did not stop them from moving forward. And, and, and the response to it is nobody groaned. Nobody complained. Nobody said, I knew this was going to happen. I mean, how many of you ever heard something like that in a church before? You know, yeah, well, if you knew that was going to happen, that's like the opposite of faith. <laughs> you know, you're the anti-faith. Uh, but, uh, but nobody did anything, anything like that. Instead, they responded immediately by raising their voices in one accord. In fact, what we read there, it says they, they raised their voices, but the word that's used there is actu actually singular. It says they raised their voice. That is that together... They had one voice, they had one message, they had one prayer, and they were praying together in unity, and, and, they, and they went to him in one accord with one purpose, praying to God. That was their response. That was like David, when I am afraid, then I will trust in, then I trust in you. They said, listen, this is, this is serious, this is important, this is, uh, this is potentially harmful to us, we need to pray. And we can learn a lot from the prayer that they prayed. The first thing, as in the case of, case of most prayers in the Bible, the first thing they did was they recognized who God, who God is. They started off by saying, Sovereign Lord. Now, when they say Sovereign Lord, uh, you need to understand that, see, in the English, we see the word Lord, uh, and, and it's translated the same way, but not all the time in the Greek is it's the same word that's there. Uh, the word that's usually translated Lord in, in Greek in the New Testament is the word kurios, K-U-R-I-O-S. It would be the English transliteration. But there's a different word that's used here. This is why they added in the translation, they added the word sovereign before it. The word that's, that's used here, uh, actually, it, it, the word is despota. And it's actually the word that we get our English word despot from. And what it really means is the master. It means the owner, or as it's translated here, the sovereign Lord. They, they went to him and said, Lord, they're making threats, but we know who you are. You are the master. You are the owner of all of this. And he go, they actually go on and talk about how he is the creator of all the universe, everything there is in the, in the earth and the sky and the sea and everything that's in all of these things. They're saying, you are the one that owns all of this, Lord God. 
And in recognizing who he is, they, 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 they confess in that and saying, Lord, because you are the owner of all, then you are sovereign and you have the power and authority in, every, in all of this. It's not, basically they're saying, the Sanhedrin think they're in charge, but God, we know that you're in charge. And so they, they recognize who he is. The second thing was that they based their petition on the inspired word of God. They, uh, uh, again, most of the prayers in the, in the Bible are based on the word of God that had already been given up to the point whenever the prayer was prayed. And, and they based it on Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And, and in that they saw a word from the Lord that was fulfilled in the opposition from these uh, Jewish leaders. It says this in Psalms 1 and 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers have, excuse me, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And, and in seeing that and recognizing what was going on, they, they're recognizing that what was happening was not strange. And, and nor was it a temporary outbreak of hostility. But what they're saying is, this is the kind of opposition to the will of God that has been going on and, and has been, it's this continued hostility against God, against his plan, against his kingdom that has taken place and has marked the world since Adam fell in the garden. That it's the, this worldly mindset is in opposition to God and they're saying, this is not new. This doesn't take us by off guard because we see in Scripture they have done this for, for centuries. And the third thing that the believers did was they based their petition on what God did through Jesus. Because they, they said in there, let me, let me get it exactly how they, they said it. They said, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So, now, it doesn't mean that they're off the hook, that they're not guilty because they chose of their own free will to do it. But they're saying, listen, they only did what needed to be done to fulfill the will of God. And that is that for, for Christ to come and, and bear our sin, our guilt on the cross and then to be resurrected again. And they, and they said, listen, we understand that through all of that, through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that, that God was in charge and his will was being done. And because he was in charge and his will was being done then, we now trust that because of what he has done through Jesus, he is still in charge and, and he's in control of what's going on now. The thing was, in their prayer and in this situation, they didn't deny reality. They didn't pretend like, you know, as if the problem wasn't there. They didn't say, well, you know, I just hope it goes away. But they recognized the very real threats of the Sanhedrin, and they admitted that they needed God's intervention if they were going to continue to be bold. Because in themselves, left to their own strength, they recognized they would not have the courage and boldness to move forward under those kind of threats. Because remember, we talked about this, the people on the Sanhedrin, some of the most powerful people in all of Israel. And so they admitted that, that, that they needed God's help. And they said, Lord, help us to be bold. Now, I want to talk about that for a minute because sometimes we, we get a little confused. Boldness, uh, I, I've known of people, and you probably have too, 
I've known of people that uh, spoke of uh, being bold, and they said, I'm, a, I'm bold for Christ, but really what they were, <laughs> instead of being bold for Jesus, they were jerks for Jesus, you know what I'm talking about? Um, where the, instead of being bold, they were just uncouth and just, I mean, just, uh, uh, I don't even have the right words to express what's, what it's, it's on the tip of my tongue, but it's just not coming to me. Uh, and, and they say, well, that's, I'm just being bold. And, and really what they were doing was that they were, they were, uh, what's that? Opinionated. Yeah. They, they had the, they, 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 these are the kinds of people say, everybody has a right to my opinion. Right. And, and so boldness is, is not that. And boldness is, is not reckless impulsiveness. It's not just saying, well, I, I, I got a hunch and so I'm going to do something. It's it, boldness requires courage to press on through our fears and do what we know is right. Uh, and like the disciples, you know what, we need to pray uh, with other believers for courage to do that, to be what he wants, what he wants us to be. Um, and it's not just about, uh, just, you know, it's not just about you praying for yourself, but this is, there's power when we pray together and we say, Lord, give us boldness to proclaim your word and to move forward no matter what anybody else does to us. So let me just throw, toss this out there. How can we be more bold? Any ideas? That's a kind of a hard question to answer because it's like, well, we could be more bold by uh, being more bold. <laughs> yeah, I know that's weird, but here's... here's Yeah, that's good. That's good. You know, I mean, uh, it goes back to what they did. The first thing is we, we pray. We pray for, for a fresh infilling of the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, and uh, everything you said is absolutely dead on right. Uh, I think also to increase boldness, we, we have to consciously look for opportunities in your family or in your neighborhood or among your friends to talk about Jesus uh, see, here's the thing is that sometimes it's just that first step that if we could just, uh, you know, have, be a little bolder with the first step and just talk about him, um, not just not trying, you know, here's the thing. We go into it and we and instead of thinking, OK, now I'm going to witness to this person, you know, that, that just sets you up for this, you know, to be really uh, uptight and trying to figure out what do I what am I supposed to say? Right. That's not what I'm talking about. I don't think that's even what witnessing really is. I think it's just talking about Jesus. It's just that it's, it's so natural to us because he is such an important part of our lives. And, and, and to, that when somebody says, man, I've really, you know, I was really, uh, uh, you know, I've been to the doctor and he said, I've got this thing going on and I just don't know what to do that we're able to say, man, I, listen, I just want you to know I'm going to be praying for you because there was a time in my life when I experienced this and, and, and God healed me. And so I know that Jesus can heal. And so I'm going to be praying for you about that. 
or, or just, you know, just talking about Jesus. Because this is what I learned a long time ago. We talk about what's important to us and we talk about what we love. We, we absolutely always do. So if you want to know what you, really, what you really love, what really matters to you, then start carrying around a recorder and record what you talk about all the time. And you'll, you'll figure it out. If you're a grandparent, you're probably going to have some grandkids in there a lot. You know, uh, if you're a parent, maybe your kids are going to be, I hope your kids are in there. You know, if you're a sports fan, you might talk about sports or your favorite team a lot. But, but what we love, what matters to us is what we talk about. And so maybe, maybe to gain boldness, one of the most important things we can do is to fall in love with Jesus again. Maybe get back to what it says in the book of Revelation where it says to, to come back to your first love. And to find that fire, that, that, that love, that passion for him that was there. And then also, you know, in the middle of it, also realize that rejection or being uh, uncomfortable socially, or maybe even embarrassment, that's really not the same as persecution. You know, uh, I've heard Christians talk about being persecuted in America. <laughs> and let me just tell you, I mean, uh, yeah, there are some people that face it, but we really don't. Not like, not like many people in the rest of the world do. And so we've got to get past that and realize Oh my goodness, if the worst that's going to happen to me is somebody's going to berate me verbally or they're going to post terrible things about me on Facebook or they're going to unfriend me or they're going to, you know, uh, gossip about me behind my back about what a goody two-shoes I am and whatever. If that's the worst that it is, that's not really persecution. Uh, 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 It's opposition, but not really persecution. So, So I just, you know, I think just start where you are by being bolder in small ways by being a little more bold about talking about Jesus and falling in love with him again uh, which goes to what Chuck was talking about you know in, in prayer and in the word because that's this is this is his revelation of who he is and we get in the word then then we fall in love with him a little more but let's get back to their prayer you know the the main triple thrust of the prayer is is, is really quite simple quite, quite straightforward and I want you to notice it's important to notice to me, not just what they prayed for, but what they didn't pray for. Their prayer was not, Lord, please cause them to die horribly. You know, some people say, oh, yeah, I pray for pray for my coworkers all the time. I pray God take them out. That's not that doesn't count. That does not count because that is not the heart of Christ right there. You know, they did not. They didn't even they didn't pray. Lord, please help them to stop being so mean. They, th- their prayer was not, Lord, let this persecution stop, or, or, or even, they didn't even pray, Lord, convert those in authority so that your, your work can go forward. Really, their prayer was very simple because they understand that a lot of those things are in the hands of the Lord anyway, and it's between them and God, but, but their prayer was very simple, this, now, Lord, look upon the threats, look at what we're going through. Be, I, I just want to be aware to know that you're aware of what we're facing. Let us go on speaking boldly. And will you please keep working powerfully? That was their prayer. They could have just as easily prayed, you know, get us out of here. They could have just as easily prayed, you know, kill off the Sanhedrin. Instead, they said, in effect, keep it going, Lord. Don't stop, Lord. And when this happens again, 
let us speak boldly without reservation. You know, the the church needs to learn in, in every generation what it means to pray with confidence like this. And that's a difficult thing in America. Um, And you can disagree with me on this, but I think the prosperity of America in some ways has made it more difficult for many American Christians to really flourish and for the roots to really grow deeper. And part of that, and let me explain what I mean, part of that is because In our nation, we can easily go to church and play the game without ever having a real heart change. And nobody's going to question that. Nobody's, you know, you don't don't suffer for playing the game. You don't suffer for for, uh, pretending to to be a good church person when you're living a double double life, not in America. Now, you you go to northern Sudan, which is... Uh, Muslim controlled listen when somebody converts to Jesus there are no games because when they make that choice they know what's coming for them and so for them to survive spiritually it means their roots have to go deeper that they have to really rely on the Lord and, and for some of us we got so much uh, of the, the material goods of the world that it's easy for us. Now, I'm not saying we do all the time, but it's easy for us to fall back on our resources instead of the one who gave those resources to us. And so, uh, you know, it's important for us, and it's, it's a hard thing for us to learn, but the church needs again and again and again to sense, uh, to, to have that sense of God's powerful presence shaking us up and and blowing away the cobwebs and filling us with the spirit and and giving us that same boldness in fact in effect they were they were praying for think about this they were praying for boldness to keep on doing the same thing that had caused them to be arrested and brought before the sanhedrin in the first place and suffer the threats of the sanhedrin so this they're saying lord they're saying, Lord, I don't know if that more of that's coming. But they said, regardless of that, give us the boldness to keep doing the very same thing that got us in trouble in the first place. And they also asked for miraculous signs and wonders. Now, they did not want God to do miracles for miracles' sake. They weren't saying, Lord, do miracles because they're really cool. They weren't saying, do miracles because, uh, because Lord, I, I just, I really want to see one. That wasn't it. They, they saw miracles as opportunities to preach the gospel, and they saw miracles as signs for people that, were, that witnessed them to recognize that Jesus was indeed risen from the dead, that the same Jesus who did miracles when he walked the face of the earth, he had truly died on the cross, but now he has been resurrected and he is alive today. And the same Jesus that did it then is the same Jesus that's doing it now. And they saw miracles as not just something to make life you know, exciting or more pleasant or have a great church service. The reason they, they prayed for miracles and the reason God did miracles and I believe he does the same thing today is because they, they saw those as opportunities to be able to say, you saw this miracle, now let me explain this to you 
Jesus, who, was, who died on the cross and is resurrected, he used to do these when he walked the face of the earth. He is still alive and he's working through his church. It's God that has done this and his opportunity to preach the gospel. And then on the, on the heels of this prayer, this group received a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit. Now, again, this is another place. We'll see it over and over through the book of Acts. It says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, you know, you go back to the day of Pentecost, and they were given the gifts of the Spirit. And it's not like all of a sudden, you know, that all the presence of the, and the power of the Holy Spirit was gone in their lives, and, and He had to come and refill them, you know, because they were empty. It, that's not what it is. It's, it's a fresh infilling of the Spirit. Very often when you see this, these, it's because circumstances or situations are, uh, are, are surrounding them in such a way that they need a special touch from God to be able to deal with what's going on around them. That's what happened with Peter and John in front of the Sanhedrin. It says, filled with the Spirit, he was anointed for that moment standing before the Sanhedrin. And now these people are praying, Lord, we need you to, to continue to move and give us boldness and move by your power. And the Lord said, I'm going to anoint you for this moment. And it was this fresh infilling. And we talk about being filled with something. It means to be overtaken and then controlled by it. And so the people they, they surrendered themselves a little more to the Spirit. The Spirit of God came and they gave themselves to that and they were controlled by the Spirit and they spoke with boldness after that fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit. Powerful moment. Powerful moment. In, in fact, I, I, I must have uh, skipped something in here, but either that or my eyes are just failing me. The very last part says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They were all filled with the Spirit. The place where they were was shaken. That speaks of the, of the power of God coming into that place. Now think about it. The day of Pentecost, it was the, it was the sound. And it was the tongues of fire, the sights and sounds. And now... God's moving and 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 building where they were. The power was so palpable that it shook the building where they were. I remember in Reno, there was a time when we were living there that uh, there was a uh, uh, I forget what they call it now, um, but anyway, there was a Anna might rem might remember because she lived in California. But there was a, a series of small earthquakes going on. I forget what they call it when they have a bunch of them together. Do you remember? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Time to, leave. Time to leave. Yeah, that's what they call it. Anyway, we were having some. We were having some earthquakes, and you know, they were none of them were, were severe, but they were all you know right there in the Reno area. And I remember at church one morning, there was a missionary there, and he was speaking. And right in the middle of service, I was sitting there, and it was a concrete floor, it was a slab building, and uh, and I remember hearing something kind of crackling in the back, and then I felt. I felt the concrete floor just kind of like rolling between my, beneath my feet a little bit. It's this really weird feeling. It was the first earthquake I'd been in. And I realized what it was. And the building, the windows were rattling and everything was shaking a little bit. And then it passed. And I remember thinking to myself, man, I wish I was preaching on this passage right here, right now. Because that would have been awesome. 
that has nothing to do with a spiritual lesson, but I just like the story. But the place where they were was shaken. You know, when the Holy Spirit moves uh, in our lives, you know what he does? He shakes things up. He doesn't, he doesn't leave it alone. Uh, he, he, has anybody here arrived yet? Anybody here completely like Jesus? Uh, all right. I don't see any hands. I'm glad. I'm glad. Because if you did raise your hands, I was going to turn it over to you and say, you need to be teaching. Well, that means that if, if I'm not there yet, if I haven't arrived, if I'm not exactly like Jesus, that means there are still some places in my life that need to be shaken up. That need to be shaken loose. And we all need that. And we need to be, sometimes we need to be shaken where we are. We need the place where we are to be shaken. You know, as a church to move forward, sometimes we need uh, where we are to be shaken before we begin to catch a vision and say there's something more that he has for us out there. And, 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 and when this took place and they were filled, then those people began to speak with boldness. And so, you know, tonight, maybe you need a shaking. Maybe there's a place in your life that's grown kind of complacent. Maybe there's a, maybe your love for Jesus has grown a little cooler. Uh, maybe you're like the church in, in Revelation that you've grown a little lukewarm. It's time to go to him and say, Lord, come into this house and shake me up. Come in here and shake me up. And, and, and by the way, there are prayers that you can pray that are uh, scary prayers. That's one of them. In the sense that you know it's going to bring some change. But it's not scary in the sense of where it's going to take you. Because anything that he shakes loose from my life now that I'm holding on to, that I think I need to keep, that I'm afraid to let go of. If he shakes that loose, it's because there's something else he wants to give me. Uh, I wish I had. I hadn't thought about it, but there's a poem that I love that, that I, I, basically it just says the, the idea behind the poem is that we hold on to these things in our life and we say, Lord, I want more, I want more, I want more. But then he finally says, let go of the things in your hand because I can't pour more into hands that are already closed. So sometimes he shakes something loose so that we'll be free to pick up something new. Anyway, let's, let's keep going. Verse 32. All the believers were, in, uh, were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned uh, land or houses sold them, uh, brought the money from the, uh, from the sales, and, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. So, now this is actually very similar to a passage from Acts chapter 2, verses 43 through 47. But this is not duplicate. It's another little summary of what's going on in the church. And, and, and the account of the community of, of, of goods is, is repeated here in, in order to introduce uh, uh, the contrasted episodes between Barnabas and, and Ananias and Sapphira. He's, he's setting up something so we can see two different, very, very similar situations that were turned out very differently. So here the Spirit-filled community exhibited... Uh, amazing unanimity, even in the attitude toward private property. Property. Now, we're going to talk about some stuff that's just going to drive us in this capitalist society crazy, but, but we're going we're to deal with it anyway. 
here's the thing, and this is what we have to get, and some of us, we have it up here in our head, but, but it's got to work its way down into our heart. None of the members of the church claimed ownership over their own possessions because they recognized they belonged to the Lord. See, now, a lot of times we get to the place where we say that with our head, with our, with our mouth, and, and we believe it in our head. But when God says, let go of this, becomes a real struggle for us. Um, now, I want to say this, because some people have used this passage to say, see there, early church communism, early church socialism, but it's not at all. This way of living is very different from communism or socialism. Here's the differences. Number one, the sharing was voluntary. So there's, that's one huge difference. It's not the government coming in and saying, uh, this is not yours anymore. Number two, uh, it did not involve all private property. They weren't, they weren't selling everything they had to give it. They, they said from time to time, they would sell something and give it to the apostles to help meet the need. And number three, it was, not a, it was not a membership requirement in order to be part of the church. They didn't say, listen, if you're going to be here, come into the church, then you've got to do this. That wasn't it at all. It was all voluntary. There was absolutely no, no uh, compulsion. Their sharing was simply an expression of their love and their unity of mind and heart and an expression of the grace of God. They, he talks about the grace flowing so powerfully that it was his grace was working so powerfully in them that this is how one of the ways that it showed up. What was happening, let me, let me bring it into modern day times and let's be able to understand this. This was a believer saying, you know, Joe, my, my brother in Christ, Joe, He's really hurting right now. And, and he, he doesn't even know how he's going to feed his family tomorrow. He's, he's in a really bad place. He's really hurting right now. I think I'll sell my boat and give the money to the church so that they can help take care of his needs. That's what they're doing. Led by the Spirit. The Spirit saying, hey, you don't need that piece of property this world's not your home anyway. Why don't you sell that? Donate the money. And all these other believers that are hurting, it can be taken care of. That was what was going on. And the richer members made provision for the poorer. And no one could complain of hunger or want. And they, they brought all these, these free will offerings. That's a huge, huge part of it is that they were free will. Nobody compelled them. Nobody even asked them to do it. This is what the Spirit led them to do. And they began to do this. And they brought those free will offerings to the apostles. And they laid it at the feet of the apostles. And then they were the ones that were working at distributing uh, to people as they had need. Now, we're going to see very shortly in the book of Acts that that soon became uh, very difficult. It became too much for them to handle. And that was where the, the uh, deacons were, were brought into the church uh, because there was too much for the, for the leaders of the church to handle. We'll get to that in, when we get to that chapter a little bit later on. And as they did all these things, as they let the grace of God flow through them and, and the love of God be manifest in actual real uh, ways, then, then the power of God attended their preaching and they continued to enjoy the grace of God and the favor of the people. Let's keep reading verse 36 because he told that little summary to set up this story and the next story in chapter 5. 
said, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Okay, so now he said this was going on. Here's a specific example of it. Uh, here's the general idea of what was taking place. And then and here's a man who did this very thing. And, he, and, uh, and in doing so, he gives us a background for the events at the beginning of the next chapter, but also... He's also introducing us to an important character, an important person a little bit later on in the book of Acts that, that was very important and really key in the mission of spreading the gospel to the, to the ends of the earth. So he introduces us to a man named Joseph, but you probably don't know him as Joseph because he was also called Barnabas. And Barnabas sold a, a piece of property and gave the proceeds, proceeds of the sale to the apostles to distribute to the needy. Now, uh, Barnabas, as we're told there, means son of encouragement. And, uh, uh, and very, it was very common uh, to use the phrase son of uh, in Hebrew or in Aramaic to indicate a person's character or a person's nature. Uh, it was also used at times even in names. Uh, how many remember blind Bartimaeus? You know what Bartimaeus means? It means son of Timaeus. Bar is son. So son of Timaeus. And here it's Barnabas, and that's, it wouldn't be Nebus, but it's just how we say the name. And so it's the son of encouragement that he's saying here. And it's not clear whether Barnabas was given the name son of encouragement because of this action or something else that he had previously done. But it was just, we, as we see later on in the, in the uh, book of Acts, we see that uh, he, he had a character that really matched that term. And it was so fitting to him that the name stuck and, and never again in Scripture is he called Joseph. But from here on, he's only referred to as Barnabas. And we're told that Barnabas was a Levite from the country of Cyprus. Now, what's interesting is um, Levites were forbidden to own property in Israel. But he sold property. Well, that's because he lived in Cyprus. And so because he lived in Cyprus, he had land in Cyprus. And he said, you know what? I don't need that. And so he sold that um, and, and brought the money. Uh, and Cyprus, by the way, is a large island off the south coast of Asia Minor. It had a very large Jewish population. And in fact, Barnabas uh, uh, teamed up with Paul. And that became one of their very first missionary stops. He went back to his own people and said, I've got to go back and tell them about Jesus. And we'll learn more, more about Barnabas in later chapters. So that's the story he brought this. Now, I want you to, he draws now a very sharp contrast as we, look, as we move into chapter 5. It says, now a man named Ananias together with his wife Sapphira also sold a piece of property. Okay, so Barnabas sold a piece, these two sold a piece. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have led, uh, uh, that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just, li uh, you have, you have not just lied to a human being, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. P 
Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who, who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her in, uh, beside her husband. Now, I actually almost have this kind of macabre sense of humor here because I've, I think about these poor young guys like, oh, there's Ananias. Okay, let me, they work, get him out, get him out, work for three hours, get him buried. Man, I'm exhausted. I'm so tired. Come back in. They walk in and there's Sapphira. It's like, all right, we're not done yet. But that's a whole weird kind of sense of twisted humor there. But um, okay, now we start off and said, now a man named Ananias, that word now is actually better translated, but because it, it draws out the contrast because it says Ananias did this and he sold the property and gave the money, but Anan or, excuse me, Barnabas did this, but Ananias did this. And with the example of Barnabas, the, the encourager before them, two members of the church uh, of the believing community conspired to get for themselves the same kind of attention given to him. I mean, think about it. Ananias and Sapphira had likely been at the worship service where Barnabas had brought his gift in and laid at the apostles' feet this great gift. To, you know, it's a great moment. And, and they saw the, the, the wow of the, of the crowd. You know what I'm talking about? When somebody does something amazing, they bring this great gift. And, you know, it's easy for people to get caught up and say, wow, you, I know what that land was worth. I, he's really done something. And the, the buzz probably would have just kept carrying on throughout the community. You know, they met in the homes, and so the people in their little uh, small groups meeting in the homes, and the buzz is going about him. Can you believe what Barnabas did, all that he gave away? What a man of God. And Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted that same reputation. Apparently, they were a little jealous of Barnabas. Maybe it was because he was, he was an out-of-towner. Well, he's Jewish, but he doesn't even live here. Why is he getting all this attention? Therefore, they, like he did, sold a field, a piece of farm property. So that was very similar. But in every other way, what they did was in stark contrast to Barnabas. Ananias kept back part of the price for himself. Sapphira shared the knowledge at the, of this and was therefore uh, in accord with him and equally guilty. And, 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 and then he, what he did was he brought the, a part of that and put it at the apostles' feet. But what he was doing, he was giving the impression that he had done just what Barnabas had done and, he's, and giving the impression of saying, uh, uh, this is all that I sold. I sold this property. Here's the proceeds. Now it is the proceeds, Technically, he hadn't really lied. Technically, which we'll get to that in a minute. But Peter, acting as representative and spokesman for the 12 apostles, knew immediately what had been done. It's, you know, it's not like he didn't have spies out there, you know, reporting on him, but he did have the Holy Spirit. And, and, and it, was, it was revealed to him probably through one of the gifts of, of revelation, such as the word of wisdom or word of knowledge. And let me ask you this, what was the sin of Ananias and Sapphira? Lying to? Lying to the Holy Spirit. That's the, that's the number one. Here's the thing. 
Ananias and Sapphira's sin was not keeping back part of the money. That was not the sin. Peter made that very clear. He said, before they sold it, it was your property. You could do with it whatever you wanted to do it. There was, you were under no compulsion to sell it. And then after they sold it, when they had the money, all that money was still at their disposal. They could do whatever they wanted to do with it. There was nothing compelling them to give at all. Uh, no one was twisting their arm. Nobody was saying, hey, you sold that money where, or you sold that land. Where's the money from it? Their sin was not about withholding money. It was lying to the Holy Spirit. And, and Ananias thought he was lying to Peter. Ananias thought he was lying to the church to try to gain favor. But when he, when he, when he lied, what, he, what, what Ananias had conceived in his heart was a lie, but, but it wasn't to men, it was to God. Now, as I said, this lie was acted, not verbalized. There's no record of him ever going and saying, this is all that I sold it for. But he gave that impression. He, 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 he made it seem as if he was doing the very same thing. And, and, and here's what I want you to understand. We talk about honesty and telling the truth or telling a lie. You don't have to actually, quote, tell a lie in order to be untruthful. In this world of, of absolutely broken politics, we all know that it's possible to say something uh, and even quote somebody accurately, but taking it out of a context and, and, uh, and making it seem as if it's saying the exact opposite of what it really means. So you can lie without actually speaking an untruth because anything said with the intent to deceive is a lie in the Lord's eyes. It's getting quiet in here. So you can say something that's factually correct with the intent to deceive. And when you do that, you're, you're, you're still lying. Well, essentially, that's what he did. But his lie was to God, the Holy Spirit, not to Peter. And, and, and here's a lesson for us to understand, to learn that all sin is really against God. All sin is really against God. W.S. Plummer said this. He said, we never see sin aright until we see it as against God. All sin is against God in this sense, that it is his law that is broken, his authority that is despised, his government that has set it not. So when you when you, when there's a sin uh, when you sin against another person, yeah, you injure them and you do sin against them. But ultimately, the real sin is because you have broken the laws of God. You have dishonored God. You have belittled His name. You have you have sinned against Him. Uh, the, 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 and these two, their actions were designed. Uh, think about this: they lied to the Holy Spirit. But why did they do it? They lied because they were trying to bring glory and honor to themselves and not Jesus. See, see, here's the thing. And this is what we, you know, we have to be careful of in today's world. And we're a Pentecostal church and, and, and we have to be careful when we talk about the gifts of the spirit, because, you know, uh, when somebody's moving in the gifts of the spirit and they're uh, garnering attention for themselves, that's a red flag to us because the Spirit always points to Jesus. And if Jesus is not being glorified, we need to be very careful in that situation. I'm not saying that God can't speak through that person. He can because when he, he, in the Old Testament, he spoke through a donkey. If he can speak through a donkey, 
you know, then, then he can use anybody. But they were trying to do this. And, and in doing this, they were, as we, the, using the terminology we've used on Sundays recently, they were belittle, belittling the name of God by claiming the glory that belonged only to him. See, Barnabas, he had done the very same thing that they had done, but when he did it, he did it because the Holy Spirit had supernaturally laid it up on his heart to do, and he gave it all, and when he did it, it brought glory to Jesus because of what he can do to change a man's heart. But when Ananias gave, he gave with the intent to steal from God the glory that belonged only to him. He said, I don't want the, the eyes of, of the church on Jesus or on these other people. I want everybody to see what a great guy I am. You know what that teaches me? Our motives matter. Our motives matter. Charles Swindoll, he says that when he was uh, in seminary, that there was a hand-painted sign that hung in front of him at his desk where he sat. And every time he looked up from his studies, he, he faced the words. And the words on the sign was, what is your motive? And that's the question we all have to ask ourselves. What is your motive? Why do you do what you do? Is it to gain the applause of men or is it to garner the applause of heaven? Is it so that people will see that you're a good Christian or is it because you're so in love with Jesus that you cannot help but live this way? Why do you do what you do? And then in verse 5 and 6 we read about the heels of that. The uh, response to Ananias' lying and stealing the glory of God was pretty harsh uh, because he died on the spot. You know, I've always kind of thought it was a little, not his death was not funny, but I always think it's kind of funny because we always talk about, we want a New Testament church. Well, within reason, you know, you know we probably don't want anybody coming to the altar, you know, and pastor praying for him, and then he just dies, you know. Somebody like, Hey, it's New Testament. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> but why do you think the Holy Spirit responded with such a severe judgment in this situation? Any ideas? To show the people? Yeah, to, yeah, to show he knows their heart. I mean, these are good. These are good. To show the people. Uh, put the glory back on God. That's right. That's right. These are all excellent answers, by the way. Uh, yeah, this indeed was a severe punishment. But God, God brought this punishment near the beginning of the church's history to let the church know what he thinks about unbelief and greed and self-seeking hypocrisy that lies to God. Um, and, and when you read scripture, in times of beginnings, God is often more severe like when the sons of Aaron offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. Some translations call it strange fire before the Lord. The fire came out from the, from the manifest presence of the Lord in the Holy of Holies and struck them down. Well, let me tell you something. When that happened early on, I guarantee you 
that the priests after that were very careful about what they did in the Holy of Holies. Right? Or there was, you know, when Israel first went into the promised land, Achan was made an example. He kept from Jericho when he wasn't supposed to, and he, he and his family faced severe punishment, but God was trying to help them understand, listen, I'm, when I say something, I mean it. You're not, you're not just going to walk into the promised land and do whatever you want to do. You've got to live the way that I want you to live. By the way, uh, on a side note on that, um, uh, God wanted all of Jericho and all the spoils of Jericho because uh, it, it's really just a picture of what he, how he has dealt with mankind all along because on the plains there, there were, there were it was a decapolis. There were, there were 10 major cities uh, on the plains there that Israel had to conquer. And uh, Jericho was the first of those. That was one-tenth. That was the tithe that belonged to the Lord. He says, that is mine. The rest of it you can keep, but that is mine. It was the same principle all along. You honor me first. You honor me first. And so Achan, but he had to pay the price. And then, you know, think about David. We just finished studying about David. Remember when he had, uh, first attempted to bring the ark back to Jerusalem? The first time he tried to do that, he brought it on a cart like the Israelites, or excuse me, like the Philistines had, had, had uh, sent it. But then death resulted when Uzziah touched the Ark of the Covenant. Well, the second time, David was a lot more careful. So, you know, we, we need to understand that early in the church here, the Lord had to make a statement. He was, and as he was often more severe early on in just saying, uh, listen, this is, this is not a game. And it also should be emphasized that Ananias' lie was premeditated. This was not a spur-of-the-moment uh, thing like, uh, is that all it is? Uh, yeah, actually it is. It wasn't like that. It was premeditated. They made a plan beforehand. And when he died, it says, a great fear, which includes terror and awe, seized all who heard about the miracle. Uh, they knew that the Holy Spirit was a mighty power, and he indeed is holy and does not... Uh, and it does not pay to lie to him. And that encouraged holiness and undoubtedly kept others from the same kind of sin. Now, burial was done quickly in those days. Also because Ananias was under God's judgment, they believed he should be buried immediately. So the young men quickly wrapped him up in a linen sheet or shroud and took him out of the city. And without the usual expressions of mourning, they buried him in a tomb, either above ground or in a cave. And then three hours go by. Three hours later, Sapphira walks in, not knowing what had happened to her husband. She's probably walking in thinking, I'm going I'm to bask a little bit in this, this glory that we have, we have uh, created for ourselves and uh, looking for some you know, commendation and praise. And, and Peter you know, looks at her inquiring as she's looking at him with this inquiring look and and he asked her if she and her husband had sold the land for the amount he had brought, he had brought in, saying, is that the full amount? Again, it wasn't about you owe the full amount. He was, he was giving her an opportunity to come clean and repent before it was too late. And he asked her a crucial question, and that question was crucial because it was her last chance to repent, and by answering it the wrong way, it shows that she had conspired together with her husband to test God. But instead of repenting, she, she too lied. And you know what they were doing? They were deliberately trying to see how far they could go in disobedience without incurring uh, God's wrath. 
And you know what? Sometimes we still have a tendency to do that a little bit. Especially, I remember when I was in youth ministry, I'd get all kinds of questions like this. They'd say, well, can I do this and still be a Christian? You know, the idea was how far can I go and still, you know, not go to hell and still go to heaven? How, how close to the edge can I get? It's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. Uh, I, I heard a story a long time ago about a man who was hiring a new limousine driver. And uh, he had three applic- applicants, and he took them up uh, on, the, on a, a mountain road with a sheer cliff by the side of the road, no guardrail. He said, all right, I'm going to hire, I'm going to give you a driving test. I want to test your skill here. And he said, the one who does the best on this, that's the one I'm going to hire. So the, so the first uh, driver got into his limo and he pulled out there and he, he was pretty close to the edge, probably about a foot away, you know, pretty close though. And, and he got out feeling pretty good about himself. And then the second guy got in and he got up there and he, and he, and he uh, got right to the edge. I mean, half the tire was hanging off the ledge and he managed, I mean, he's amazing skill and he managed to pull out of there and got through that curve safely. And the third guy got in. And he started driving, and he hugged as close to the center wall as he could and, and got around there, and the guy hired the third one. Because it wasn't about how close you could get. It was how safe can you be. And, you know, when we ask the question, can I do this and still get away with it? First of all, if you're asking that question, it's probably because you're wrestling with the voice of the Spirit inside of you about something that, you're, that, you're, that you know you shouldn't be doing and the, answer, the question is not how far can I go, but it's how close can I get to the world and still be in Jesus. But it's how close can I get to, to Jesus so that my light will shine that much brighter so that the world can see. Well, anyway, Peter directed her attention to the feet of the young man at the door who had just returned from burying her husband. And then she, and she, he said, they're going to carry you out now too. And then by the same kind of miracle of divine judgment, Sapphira fell down immediately at Peter's feet and breathed her last breath. And they came in and said, okay, here we go again. And they took her out and buried her beside Ananias. And now I know it's getting late, but let me finish this up. The results of this. Verse 11, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used used to meet together at Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them. That's an interesting statement. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. But this sounds contradictory, but I'll try to explain it in a minute. Nevertheless, more and more women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? But I'll explain what, what what I think it means. As a result, people uh, brought the sick into the streets and laid them on bed, beds and mats so that it, at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns of, around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and, and all of them were healed. So great fear came on the whole church and all who heard about these words. That, that fear was a holy fear, and it, and it didn't split the church and it did not hinder the work of God. And, and when we talk about fear, uh, fear of God, I think we need to understand something about this. Because uh, the, the, in, here, in this instance, the Greek word used here literally means terror. 
And, and we, you know, when we talk about the fear of God, we often hear people say, well, it's a reverential awe. Well, there is a sense of that, but there's also at times when the New Testament uses words that talk about terror in the presence of God. And, 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 and yes, we need to have that reverential awe of God, but, w- but we need to have a real fear of the Lord as well. Not in the sense, you know, as his children, we're not afraid that he's going to, that he's going to take us out. We're not afraid of what he's going to do to us. But in the sense of this, of saying, I know that my God is truly holy and that if I choose to live in sin, he's not going to just let that go and be afraid of what what we will face if we choose to continue to walk in sin. Does that make sense? I'm not talking about, you you know, the kind of fear like some children walk into their house and they're afraid of their dad because they don't know if he's going to just blow his top at any time. That's not what you're talking about. But it's understanding that God does not just on a whim excuse sin. And and I believe one of our society's greatest needs is a fear of God. Even in the church, we still need to have a a sense of the fear of God uh, because no one is afraid of consequences. Even Christians don't fear consequences when they sin. And and they, they sometimes go into it with this presumption of saying, oh, I'll just do whatever I want to do. God's going to forgive me. And, and, and you know what? You're walking a really shaky, dangerous ground when you make a presumption and you say, God has to forgive me because uh, that's, that's a different study in the book of Hebrews, but you're, you're walking on a very dangerous property in that sort of situation. But you know what? Here's what I know. If I have no fear of God, then I will continue to walk in sin. Because, because if, uh, what I'm talking about fear of God is understanding that sin will not go unpunished. Now, at any time I can repent and, and the, the punishment that Christ took on the cross pays the, the price for my sin. But if I, if I want to continue walking in sin, basically what I'm saying is I want to pay that price myself. And so, you, you know, we, we need this. We need to have this sense of the fear of God, the, the, this overwhelming awe. And, there, and there's, a, there's a, a large portion of it's this, this reverential awe, which, and sometimes I think we even lost that in the church some, at times because, you know, we, we sing, and we, rightfully so, we sing songs about our intimacy with Him, and we should celebrate that, but we also sometimes forget that, that not only is He that near intimate God, but he's also not like us. He is very different from us. His ways are higher than our ways, that that there's something about him and his holiness and his power and his majesty that when when we get into his presence, we're like Isaiah, where we just fall on our faces in awe and say, I can't believe I'm in the presence of this God. And listen, I know we serve a God of grace and mercy. But I also believe that, if, that grace and mercy is meaningless if there's no justice or payment required for sin. Because if there's nothing required for my sin, why would I need justice, our grace or mercy? And with an emphasis on grace and mercy, which we should have, that's the, that's the heart of the message of the gospel it's easy to overlook the equally important truth that God is holy and we got to remember God has not changed he still 
hates sin as much as he ever did. We've got to remember that. And does that mean, you know, that I, you know, I, I make a bad choice and I sin and all of a sudden I have to be afraid that I've lost my salvation? That's not what I'm talking about. Not what I'm talking about at all. He's a loving father. He's not going to just with one mistake swoop in and say, out of the family. No, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when we continually rebel and push against the voice of the Spirit as He convicts us and says, come on back home, come back home. And we continue to push and, and insist on our own way. And eventually we get to that place where I don't have time tonight, but we get to that place where we backslide, where we walk away from Him and we're outside of grace. And, and the sad part is at that point, point in time, we rarely even realize it, number one. And number two, we rarely even care. It's like Samson. One of the saddest verses in all the New, Old Testament is that when they, he finally told Delilah about cutting his hair, says that she, they cut his hair while he was asleep, and the Philistines came in and says that Samson got up and shook himself as before, but he did not know that the Spirit had left him. That's that place of crossing that line where you say, I want what I want, I want what I want, I want what I want. And the Lord finally says, okay, you can have it. That's exactly what Samson did. He was not supposed to be messing around with uh, someone like Delilah. But he wanted what he wanted. And God said, okay, you can have it. And it cost him a lot. Let me find a way to bring this. We got the plane in the air. I got to find a landing strip here. <laughs> it says there. Let's skip over here. It's, I want to get to that part, and we'll close. We'll, we'll bring this close with this. It said uh, no one, el no one else dared join them. Now, what I, what I think he's talking about there is in reflecting on what Ananias and Sapphira had done is that no unbelievers dared to mix in with the crowd of believers as if they were one of them. Nobody dared play the part. No one else, no one else took the idea of joining in with these people lightly anymore because they were very popular. Nobody, nobody went into it and said, hey, that's a great group. That's fun. Let's go over there. Because now they're like, okay, this is a little more serious than what we thought. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So even though people were afraid because of what had happened, they were still reaching people. People were, were, we were weighing their decisions in light of what had taken place. And they were still coming to a conclusion that they wanted to be followers of Christ. And just like what we were talking about earlier, those believers in Somalia, listen, these here now, they were, they were not faking it. Those who were being saved were not faking it. They, when they made a decision to follow Jesus, they had counted the cost and they were all in. And I just want to say this, you know, in, in spite of that, I mean, you know, it's kind of a hard sell in the church growth community when, you know, you have two of your members drop dead because they, <laughs> they lied to the Holy Spirit, you know, in church. And, uh, and then you say, okay, well, that's gonna, let's, let's keep growing the church. But I say this, 
evangelism of, uh, of the lost is not dependent op upon our circumstances. You know, it's the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the middle of these situations. And, and people in, in, the, in the first century, they were, they were attracted to the early church by the expressions of God's power at work. They saw the miracles. They saw this thing was real. They saw the power of God moving through the people of God. They, they were attracted by the generosity and the sincerity and the honesty and the unity of the members of the church. They said, there's nothing else like this. And it's still true. There's still nothing like the church when the church is working right. And then they were attracted by the character of the leaders that, that they were willing to stand up to the Sanhedrin, to the powerful men in that nation, and they were willing to do what, they, what God's calling them to do, no matter what it may cost them. And, and you know what? Today is the same people. If we want to reach the city, if we want to see God begin to add to the, his number, to the number here in this local body of believers, then people need to see the power of God flowing through, it, through us and people will respond when they see that this is real. And I'm not just talking about miracles. I'm talking about the way we live our lives every single day. That we don't just come to church and act one way. And then we, we end up you know, talking to our neighbors like, like they're less than we are. Or we end up treating our, the, the, the waiters and waitresses that wait on us as if they're uh, dirt and trash. And they're only there to serve us and to meet our needs. It means that when we come in here and we proclaim the love of Christ then we go out and live in the love of Christ. And it does include the power of the Spirit. Now, I cannot make the Holy Spirit do miracles. How many of you know that? It's weird that we don't manipulate Him. But I, I need to make myself available, and this goes back to that boldness to where, we, where when the Holy Spirit begins to speak like he did to Peter and John at the gate with the lame man, when the Spirit spoke to Peter and said, hey, I'm going to heal him right now, Peter had the boldness and faith to say, I, I know God's talking to me. I know that voice. I'm going to go and pray for this guy. That we begin to respond in obedience and in boldness to the Spirit of God, but also in humility to the Spirit of God, that God can begin to use us to do miraculous things in the community, and God can begin to glorify his name and when people see that that the church is real then they want to be part of it so the challenge for us let's be the church time to stop playing church and time to be the church may we be empowered by the spirit and challenged and changed to where we can take this message of love and hope and grace to a world that's going headlong into a, 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 an eternal judgment in hell and be able to say, there's a better way. And not just tell them, but that they could see, it, see that in us. Let's pray together. Father, I just pray, Lord God, that...